0: Okay, I think we'll get started. A little change in plan. um, In part because of the number of just the questions and things that people have asked me after our last talk, we're going to, anyway, it's going a little bit different direction. You'll see today we're going to talk about the the Gnostic Gospels a little bit, and we'll also talk about just um, the Jesus legend. You know, a lot of people are questioning today whether there really was a Jesus, how how can we be sure that there, uh, the historical accuracy or the Gospels, are they a reliable account? So we're going to talk about that, and I think we'll actually address a little bit more of the subject of inspiration when we get into Matthew. All right, so let's pray as we begin today. Father, we ask that you would be with us just now as we discuss this book that we talk about so much. Um, please convict us based on um, evidence that uh, this book really is reliable and trustworthy and help us to use the information in this book and to uh, respond to you in an appropriate way. In your name we pray. Amen. So last time, remember, we kind of got up through the King James and um, remember we were discussing that after the King James that the hunt was for documents, the most up-to-date ancient manuscripts because it was determined that um, the the Greek, the Hebrew that was used for the King James Version was not the most uh, reliable, trustworthy. And so we discussed the story of that a little bit. But even despite the fact that all these versions came out, notice the long times, King James was 1611, the English uh, Revised Version, or better known as just the Revised Version, 1881. That's a huge uh, period of time. But these ancient documents were used then to revise and improve the King James Version. And so all of these translations here we'll we'll discuss through the American Standard, Revised Standard, 1952, New American Standard, New King James, New Revised Standard. Um, Essentially, these are using the King James, but yet going back to the ancient manuscripts to try to make it uh, as accurate as possible. But the King James was still the favorite Bible. And in part, there's good reason for that. Uh, The English Revised Version, um, it's a little bit clumsy. Just uh, read this here. Jesus' words, or the description in Luke 9 about what Jesus did. And they did eat and were all filled. And there was taken up that which remained over to them of broken pieces, 12 baskets. Um, It just doesn't flow that well. So the King James uh, kind of remains here the dominant version. American Standard Version, a very good version, but still King James is the one, the popular version of the Bible. So now if we skip all the way forward, we'll come back and discuss some of these older ones. But the the New King James Version, which is an excellent translation, uh, reliable, trustworthy, um, but still we're using some out-of-date terms, a day of his espousals, uh, dandled. We could give some other examples just of words we don't use um, uh, every day or at all. And it's still, as some have criticized the New King James as uh, perhaps not using uh, the most reliable uh, Greek manuscripts. And there is just one example. And these are far and few between. So if you have a New King James Bible, keep it. You don't need to switch your version. But here is something that's in the New King James that is because perhaps we're not going back to the most uh, reliable Greek manuscripts. This description of the man who laid by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. And the story goes on. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. And you know the story of how Jesus came along and healed him. Now, The difficult thing with this verse is, uh, remember we're asking of every story, what does it say about God? And what would it say about God if these people are lying by this pool, God sends an angel down there, and the first one in gets healed. So who gets healed? Strongest Strongest people. And maybe an angel one time after doing this many times would come back and say, you know God, just one time, I mean this guy's been lying here for 38 years, can't you... Maybe bend the rules just a little bit. And God says, no, nope, first one in, that's the way it works. And um, this, this will be a little bit difficult, perhaps, to incorporate into uh, our picture of who God is. And, uh, of course, it's relieving. And now we have better uh, documents. And here the, the Net Bible, which has just wonderful footnotes and lots of them, of this portion. Say, few textual scholars today would accept the authenticity of any portion of verses 3 and 4, for they are not found in the earliest, and best witnesses. So basically, it was a legend, or it was thought that an angel came down and stirred the water, but uh, that's that's not the reality. So again, as we get back closer and closer, these things uh, tend to be cleared up rather than making them more confusing. Now, the other thing besides the uh, the thrust to get back to the original documents, the older the better. The other discovery is with uh, the discovery of these ancient manuscripts, especially the Greek, um, this was the other determination, which is maybe rather surprising. It became clear that the New Testament documents were written in a plain, simple style to meet the needs of ordinary men and women, should they not then be translated into the same kind of English. And uh, the Message Bible, uh, we'll we'll talk about the Message Bible in, in detail here in just a little bit, but here is um, Eugene Peterson's description here uh, in the introduction to the New Testament. A striking feature in all this writing is that it was done in the street language of the day, the idiom of the playground and marketplace. In the Greek-speaking world of that day, there were two levels of language, formal and informal, Formal language was used to write philosophy and history, government decrees, and epic poetry. If someone were to sit down and consciously write for posterity, it would, of course, be written in this formal language with its learned vocabulary and precise dictation. But if the writing was routine, shopping lists, family letters, bills, receipts, it was written in the common informal idiom of everyday speech, street language. And this is the language that's used throughout the New Testament. Some people are taken aback by this, supposing that language dealing with a holy God and holy things should be elevated stately and ceremonial. But one good look at Jesus, his preference for down-to-earth stories and easy association with common people gets right to that supposition. You should read the whole thing. It's really very good. So essentially, the, the Bible was written so that the common person could understand. And again, look at Jesus, his stories... Uh, people didn't have to go to the dictionary after they heard Jesus. It was clear. It was understandable. Maybe the meaning wasn't understood, but you remembered that story and you could talk about it. So we have then modern speech versions to put it in a very contemporary language, easy to understand, the Latin words being used less and less. So there's a 20th century New Testament version here, 1901, revised in 1904, And again, going back to ancient manuscripts, many of these things get cleared up. For example, when Jesus would say, drink ye all of it, about uh, drinking the wine. Um, And I've heard stories of people who at communion, boy, it's a big deal. Get that last drop out of the cup. Because Jesus said, drink ye, and we want to put a comma here, all of it, every last drop. And of course, now that uh, this is understood a little better in the 20th century, it's drink from it all of you. All of you come together and drink it. It's not referring to get that last little tiny drop in there. So we have lots of other modern translations. Moffat's is, uh, uh, I understand, a very good translation. And I saw this in the Christian bookstore just last week. Goodspeeds is the first American translation, 1923, 1927. Um, this is really a, an excellent translation of the Bible. And, and you can purchase this. Maybe we'll just quote one Rather a stimulating passage here from Goodspeed. The night before Jesus died, he said this, I have said all this to you in figures, parables, dark speech, but a time is coming when I shall not do so any longer, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And shouldn't our ears just perk up? Boy, we're going to get it plain about the Father. When that time comes, you will ask as my followers, and I do not promise to intercede with the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself. Jesus will not intercede with the Father for the Father loves us himself. Um, You may get into a a fight if you read this passage in in some circles, but uh, it's really an excellent translation of this. Again, coming back to the King James and with a better understanding of some of these passages. After Jesus' resurrection, he said to Mary, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to the Father. And maybe we're tempted to imagine Jesus saying, Don't touch me, don't touch me, and that if Mary had touched him, the whole plan of salvation would have been completely destroyed. And, uh, but we read this in good speed: You must not cling to me, for I have not yet gone to my father. In other words, don't go on touching me. Don't go on holding me, okay? Because he wants to go back to the father. So it puts, I think, a more accurate spin than don't touch me. So Revised Standard Version, 1952, Uh, This one was uh, burned in several places because of its uh, translation of Isaiah 7, 14 where instead of virgin, it's young woman. Uh, We talked about that last year. Uh, Some have commented that this is an improvement, at least we're burning the Bible and not the translator of the Bible. (laughs) Then we have the New Jerusalem Bible. This was the first Catholic Bible that was translated from the original languages, 1966, New Jerusalem Bible, and it's a very good translation. Uh, New English Bible, these English Bibles uh, from England tend to have just, I don't know, any of you know what a ruffled bustard is and and some of these things that uh, we just uh, can't identify. The New Revised Standard Version, 1990, uh, which is a revision of the American Standard, 1901. This was from the King James. It's, very re- I understand, a, one of the most accurate translations, the most up-to-date textual studies of the New Testament. So if you're looking for a good uh, study Bible, you really want to get it from as, as accurate as possible. The New Revised Standard is an excellent translation. The NIV, uh, stated to be somewhere between a literal and a free modern speech edition. And since 1987, has outsold the King James Version. So... We have finally something that's more popular than the King James. And I bring this up. The NIV, it's a fantastic translation of the Bible. And I only bring this up for this purpose, which is the translators of these versions, it's, everything is heavily scrutinized. You could not just manipulate or make some uh, change without it being discussed and pointed out. I mean, they're... Uh, reputation is on the line, and and these really are trustworthy versions. And a tiny little thing like this is made a big deal of. This verse in Jeremiah 7:22. It's a difficult verse, and this is, I understand, uh, essentially what this verse says in the Hebrew. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, I did not tell them anything about burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, you go back to the Old Testament, and we have all these things that God said about burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so in the NIV. They add a word. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. Um, It clears it up. But um, the question is, do we want to have everything cleared up for us or should we just leave it as it is from the Hebrew as best as possible and then let the reader try to put it together uh, into their theology? So a tiny little thing like this, you can go on the web and find lots of discussions about uh, adding that word to to try to smooth it over. But it's a great translation. Um, I talked about this verse last time. And we go to the NIV, and this is how it translates, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. A really good translation. And the, the TNIV, more recent, it's interesting to notice the change here. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son is added, but the one and only who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Okay, the New American Standard Bible. Uh, again, another excellent uh, translation. It's stated to be a literal translation. And just to make a point that there is no such thing as a literal translation of the Bible. And those of you that speak more than one language know you cannot literally translate one language into another. It just doesn't work. Um, my wife is uh, from Germany, and so there are just lots of examples of this. Uh, before eating, we say, Guten Appetit. And if you're going to do a literal translation, it's good appetite. But to us, what does that sound like? That Germans say, now indulge yourself before you eat a meal. But no, the meaning is, enjoy your meal. Okay, so which is more accurate? The literal or the translation that gives the meaning of what you're really trying to say. So a literal translation, uh, if you have a word-for-word translation of the Bible, it is very, very hard to read. Here's how the New American Standard translates John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Again, a very good translation. Uh, The Phillips Version in 1972, Um, it's really a fantastic translation. He only did the New Testament and two or three books in the Old Testament. Uh, But in one Bible translation book that I appreciated, they stated of all the modern English translations of the New Testament, this is one of the best, perhaps actually the best for the ordinary reader. It's very readable. Um, I had initially put in here all of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, um, because it's so well done. You should read it in the Phillips. Uh, but maybe we'll stick with a shorter passage here, this one we just read in John 16. I have been speaking to you in parables, but the time is coming to give up parables and to tell you plainly about the Father. When that day comes, you will make your request to him in my name, for I need make no promise to plead with the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you. Good speech shows intercede. Phillips chooses the word plead. Good translation. Okay, and then easy-to-read translations. Again, uh, trying to make it as readable as possible for the average person, the Good News Bible. Uh, and I guess the, the mistake here, again, is to say, well, if it's easy to read, if it's simple, then we really can't be getting the full meaning of it. And we just should not make that assumption. Uh, if it's easy to read, well, this translation is really a, a very excellent one, not perfect, there are some problems here and there, but it stresses getting the clear meaning of each passage as clear as possible and gone are the Latin words. Then there's a contemporary English Bible which is designed more for younger people, again even more readable. Then we have paraphrase translations and I'll just mention two of these, the Living Bible, 1971. And this is a paraphrase of the American Standard, so not going back to the original languages. And look at this, in the mid-1970s, 46% of all Bible sales were the Living Bible. This was the Bible that uh, was my Bible when I grew up. Now, here is something you should know about paraphrase. These are not study Bibles. And just as one example here, the Book of Amos opens up in the American Standard, the words of Amos who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa. Okay, that's what it says essentially in the Hebrew. Now, here's the Living Bible. Amos was a herdsman living in the village of Tekoa. All day long, he sat on the hillsides watching the sheep keeping them from straying. Now, it makes it fun to read, but that's just added. It's a detail that's added so that it makes it more interesting and readable. Okay, so, and that's fine. Um, But um, in paraphrase translations, if you want something like to listen to when you're driving or something like that, it's it's really enjoyable, but you just have to know this is not, this is just added for color. Not to confuse the Living Bible with the New Living Translation. This one really does go back to the uh, original manuscripts, and it's a very, very good translation, not a paraphrase translation. So again, we use our same verse here, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So again, I love that the, uh, the ancient manuscripts on this verse, uh, all the modern translations are coming out that the one who came was none other than God. Okay, and then finally, the Message Bible. I have to say a little bit about this. First of all, uh, this is a paraphrase, but it's a mistake to say that this is an easy-to-read Bible. Um, it is. It has some uh, difficult words. I mean, this is really a, a Bible for adults. Paraphrase. So chagrined, embryonic, resplendent. We could make a long list of words that, uh, you know, you don't want to give this to your 11-, uh, 12-year-olds uh, probably to read. And the Message Bible, it's uh, in some places, boy, it just seems to... Um, expand on a critically important meaning and it really hammer, hammers it home and it's wonderful, but you cannot get back to the Greek and the Hebrew from the Message Bible. Okay, so uh, I, this is the most extreme example that I'm aware of in the Message Bible, but just read this here in Galatians. Galatians 5:19 to 21. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way of and trying to get your own way all the time, repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, Paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go... (laughs) So, um, this is interesting. and, And I really enjoy the Message Bible. But again... Um, If you want a study Bible, uh, uh, you would uh, not want to use the Message Bible. You want to incorporate this with with other uh, translations. And things like the New Century Version, if you go into Bible bookstores, you can buy this in this kind of a format. This is the New Testament. And it looks just like a magazine inside. You go inside, there are just all kinds of stuff. And I think this is great. I mean, you give this to... Um, They have ones for boys and girls. And uh, it makes it more attractive. And if you can get people to read the Bible in whatever format, uh, that's a good thing. God's Word, maybe for time I won't go over this, but it's another translation that I enjoy. The Net Bible, very good translation from the original languages. And what's really nice about the Net Bible is just extensive translator's notes. So that verse in John 1.18, go to the Net Bible, they have a whole long description about um, why you choose son or God. And it's free download. All the footnotes are downloaded. And just from their website, I love this comment. The Bible is God's gift to humanity. It should be free. So they they try to make it as available as possible. Now, I'm going to... Well, maybe I'll deal with this very quickly. What are we looking for in a translation? I won't read the whole verse, but here's a good example. In Romans 8, 3, I understand that... Um, the Greek literally says that Jesus came to deal with sin. That's it. He came to deal with sin. And so in a translation, you would uh, you would like the reader to be able to decide how did Jesus deal with sin. And most many of the translations just leave it like that. He came because of the sin problem. He came to deal with sin. Um, but again, it's very hard and you can sympathize with translators. Well, you come with a certain understanding of that and so... Um, here are some other ways. God's word version, he came to pay for sin. Um, now, again, I, I love this translation, but that does have some implications. Who did he pay? The father, the devil, and we might you know, just kind of wonder what actually happened or an offering to pay for sin in the new century version. King James is really good. He just came for sin. came because of the sin problem new living. He came as a sacrifice for our sins. The NIV says he came for a sin offering, but if you go to the footnote, it says literally for sin. So ideally what we're looking for in a translation is something that's neutral, as close to the original as possible, and then just let the reader try to figure it out. Um, But um, anyway, I guess the point is the translations as a whole are very good. Here's the... Message Bible. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. So you really, and you get this very expanded uh, passage here. So the conclusions are the Bible has never been so widely available and so well translated. Taken as a whole, all of the modern translations of the Bible are trustworthy. None are perfect. They all have their uh, little problems, maybe not This verse is not quite as well translated as another. And that's why strength in numbers. And so with programs that are free, like ESWORD, here you can take all the different uh, translations and you can click on a verse and immediately check what 20 different translators had to do with this. Uh, You can click on ones here that have the plus sign next to it. And you can go back to the Greek and Hebrew and then read the description of that Greek and Hebrew word. So uh, technology has been a good thing. Now, um, I just thought maybe we'll talk just a little bit about the Gnostic Gospels and then finish off with how do we know Jesus was a real person? How do we know that the four Gospel accounts are accurate? Just because it seems like a lot of people ask about this. First of all, a little bit about Gnosticism. And it seems that uh, the New Testament writers were, were seeing this develop And I think this verse in 2 Timothy ties in well with what would happen in Gnosticism. Paul would say the time will come when people will not listen to sound doctrine, but will follow their own desires and will collect for themselves more and more teachers who will tell them what they are itching to hear. They will turn away from listening to truth and give their attention to legends. Okay, what's legend? And... uh, We can easily think maybe Jesus, just part of the Gnosticism. He was a legend as well. So Gnosticism really came out of the mid-2nd century. Gnosis is knowledge, but specifically this is a secret knowledge. It's a revealed internal knowledge, and it's very much analogous to a New Age movement. Jesus was seen as a giver of secret knowledge, and the different Gnostic Gospels describe a person close to Jesus or a disciple, someone who really got it. They got the secret knowledge and then they pass on that secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge or revelation was always a way of freeing the soul from the body. Anything material in Gnosticism is bad. And in fact, uh, the God who made a material body is imperfect or sinful in some versions of Gnosticism. So they borrowed from many uh, religions and they melded this into their mysticism and uh, incorporated some Christian ideas. So we have all these Gnostic Gospels of Mary, Thomas, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Judas. And um, these are troubling uh, to people when things come out like about the Da Vinci Code and so on that borrow from some of these books. So I think it's just helpful to actually read from these books and just see, does this fit with scripture or not? So let's just read a little bit from the Gospel of Judas. And we'll really get the flavor here. This was written around 300 AD. uh, Judas said to Jesus, I know who you are and where you are from. You are from the immortal realm of Barbello. And uh, Gnosticism always has these uh, really interesting places and realms. And uh, so Jesus came from Barbello. A great luminous crowd appeared, cloud. Jesus said, let an angel come into being as my attendant. A great angel, the enlightened, divine, self-generated. Again, interesting uh, kind of funky names that are in the Gnostic Gospels. I found it interesting. Jesus calls him into being, but yet his name is self-generated. But anyway, because of him, four other angels came into being from another cloud and they became attendants for the angelic self-generated. The self-generated said, let And there's corrupted text here, but let someone come into being, and it came into being, and he created the first luminary to reign over him. He said, Let angels come into being to serve him, and myriads without number came into being. He said, Let an enlightened aeon come into being, and he came into being. He created the second luminary to reign over him, together with myriads of angels without number to offer service. That is how he created the rest of the enlightened aeons. Adamus was the first luminous cloud that no angel had ever seen among all those called God. He made 72 luminaries appear in the incorruptible generation. The 72 luminaries themselves made 360 luminaries appear in the incorruptible generation in accordance with the will of the Spirit that their number should be five for each. The 12 eons, please don't leave, we're almost done, of the uh, of the 12 luminaries constitute their father with six, six heavens for each eon so that there are 72 heavens for the 72 luminaries and for each firmament, firmament, for a total of 360 firmaments, they were given authority and a great host of angels without number for glory and adoration and after that also virgin spirits for glory and adoration of all the eons and the heavens and their firmaments. And basically this is a very good example of Gnosticism. It's all about the spirit world. Anything material uh, is bad. And um, so the question is, we read these, does this fit in with the Bible? So again, matter is evil, unredeemable. So in the gospel of Judas, Judas is a hero because what he did allowed Jesus to free himself and the soul escaped and uh, so he did God's will. And it denies a bodily res- re- uh, resurrection because, again, the body, anything material, is evil. Now, here's what's the problem is that it's implied by some, these are my own words, is that the Gnostic Gospels have the same credibility as the New Testament writings, and it's just luck. They didn't actually end up in the canon. And so we worry, well, how do, why does Timothy belong there and maybe the Gospel of Judas doesn't? But here's where I think it's important if we just go all the way back. There are writings as far back as 180 AD in uh, the early Christian world that dealt with Gnosticism. And essentially, I won't read all these long quotes, but this is essentially what the early Christian church said. These people don't know what they're talking about. This is not the tradition. This is nonsense. And 1 John 4 even deals specifically with some early Gnostic ideas. Here are some reasons that I think we should not be uh, troubled about these Gnostic Gospels. First of all, they were written a long time after the oldest New Testament book. Some are making a good case that the whole New Testament was written by 70 A.D., certainly by 100 A.D. The Gnostic Gospels were written hundreds of years later, after the fact. And the concluding thing I want to point out here is that just when you read the Gospels and Paul, they write as very much as insiders. Uh, the Gnostic Gospels very much outsiders. It doesn't seem to fit in uh, as well, uh, at all well. And also Gnostic writing has absolutely no interest in history, facts, evidence, its mystical realms, its self-revelation. It has an entirely different flavor altogether. So the last thing I want to talk about is the Jesus legend. How would you compare uh, the Gospels that we have in our canon versus the Gnostic Gospels to determine? which belongs. First of all, what gives the Gospels um, and the, the writings of these New Testament writers just credibility is it's always written from a first-hand account. Just listen, listen to how First John 1 opens up. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen and heard. I mean, goes out of his way here to say, we saw it, we saw it, we heard it, we touched it. Now let us tell you about it. Luke opens up the same way. Dear Theophilus, many people have done their best to write a report of the things that have taken place. They wrote... What we have been told by those who saw these things from the beginning and who proclaimed the message, and so, Your Excellency, because I have carefully studied all these matters from their beginning, I thought it would be good to write an orderly account for you. The Gnostic Gospels do not have that uh, kind of evidence, the, the pointing towards the historical aspects. Now here is an interesting thing. And this is actually done by historians to try to decide: is this legend? Is this real? And basically, it is things that would have been left out. I mean, if you were just making this up, uh, were it not true? And this is actually referred to as the uh, embarrassment factor. Okay, for example, if you go back to uh, ancient kingdoms and you get the records of this kingdom, um, all you find out is that the king was successful in every single battle. Well, then you find records from the rival kingdom. And all you find is the king being successful in every single battle. So the way you put together history is, well, you compare the two. Because one is just leaving off the record anything that does not look favorable. The Gospels have a very, very high embarrassment factor for the disciples. And with a legendary count, the disciples are always heroes as well. Everything is wonderful about the followers of a legendary figure. So we just take a factor like women. And we consider how we know women were viewed in that time, in Jesus' day. And you would not include all of these details about women if you were just making this up and trying to fit with the theology of the day. So the Samaritan woman at the well, remember the disciples, you know, what's he doing talking to this woman? They're annoyed. Not only is she a, a Samaritan, but she's a woman. The Canaanite woman, remember how annoyed the disciples were. What? What's he doing? Just tell her to leave. And remember the story concludes with Jesus proclaiming what great faith she has. The woman caught in adultery. I mean, you just would not make up that story. It was so countercultural. The women at the tomb. I mean, uh, who was it that came bravely to see the tomb after Jesus was resurrected? It was the women. What were the disciples doing? They were in a room shaking in their boots and the women were there first. So all of these things just, boy, you would not make up something like that. And just Jesus' words that, again, would you intuitively, you're trying to write a a book that points to this being the Messiah, and we have Jesus saying, why do you call me good? Or people saying he has a demon, hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. Would you make up a detail like that? Or Jesus would go to one place, and he was not able to perform any miracles there. Jesus' words, the son of man who did not come to be served, but to serve Was that their picture of the Messiah? Would you make that up? And his own family, when they heard about it, they set out to take charge of him because people were saying he's gone mad. His own family thought he'd gone mad. Would you make up a detail like that? Uh, If you're trying to point to this being the Messiah, would you conclude his dying words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is this a hero that we want to follow? Again, these are wonderful passages if understood correctly, but would you make them up? The disciples, again, in legendary accounts, the disciples are heroes. They're, um, you know, they, There's nothing bad written about them. We just look at the account. I mean, Peter, just think of all the things that Peter did. Mark is reliably thought to be Peter's gospel. And we have all these things. Jesus said to Peter, get away from me, Satan. Would you want that included in there? Thomas, what's he known as? Doubting Thomas. Um, Jesus would say, love your enemies, love your enemies, love your enemies. Pray for them. And then you read over one chapter and the disciples say, shall we call down fire from heaven on them? I mean, they just see, appear rather dull frequently. We read in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus fed 5,000. And we just go a few verses over to Mark 8 verse 1. And all these people are around and Jesus says to his disciples, hmm, how can we feed all these people? What can we do? And oh, it would take a lot of money. I don't know. I mean, you know, they just didn't seem to catch on real fast. And how about this one? Then the wife of Zebedee came to Jesus with her two sons, James and John, and bowed down before him and asked him for a favor. And the favor was, promise me that these two sons of mine will sit at your right and your left when you are in the kingdom. Now, the Bible, the most read book in human history, and how would you like this left in that your mom came up to ask (laughs) Jesus to uh, do something for you. Very, very high embarrassment factor. You just don't make these things up. Details and names. Just just look at all the details here. We read about the man who carried Jesus' cross. Simon was from Cyrene, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Details about Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the wife of Zebedee. The blind beggar has a name, and he's a son of a person with a name. How about these details in Mark 14? It was now two days before the festival, the Passover, so we've got the time The chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for a way to arrest Jesus. Here's what they're doing. Jesus was in Bethany. He's at a house of Simon, uh, a man who had suffered from a dreaded skin disease. And while Jesus was waiting, a woman came in. I mean, detail after detail, timeline, people that were there. Luke 3, just look at all the details. It was the 15th year of the ruler of Emperor Tiberius. And all this fits. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was the ruler of Galilee, his brother Philip was ruler in this area, Licinius was ruler of Abilene, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, K-I-F-S K- were high priests. And at that time, the word of God came to John of Zachariah. I mean, it's just credible. We read about 18 people who were killed when a tower fell. Well, we don't know anything about this. It's just a, it's a detail that gives it a credibility. Superfluous details. When people look to see if something reliable, you have all these superfluous details that don't necessarily add a whole lot, but it makes it believable. And there are lots of these. They are characteristic of an eyewitness account. So we read about the disciples in the boat getting their nets ready. They left their father's ebony in the boat with the hired men. Do we need to know that? No, but it's helpful. The people sat down in rows in groups of hundreds and 50. Uh, it's believable. They saw it. Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net ashore full of big fish, 153 in all. Do we need to know that there were 153 fish? No, but they counted them and it was cool, so they wrote it down. It it adds a credibility factor. And so in conclusion, C.S. Lewis, uh, just listen to this quote. I have been reading poems, vision literature, myths all my life. I know what they are like and I know that not one of them is like this. It does not fit a myth a legend. And so he was really right when C.S. Lewis said, Jesus, he's either Lord, he's liar, or he's lunatic. So I think if we believe that the Gospels are accurate, they're reliable, it's what really happened. Uh, the reason that I think we maybe don't want to accept it, we want to go after the Gnostic Gospels and so on, is that being a Christian very much does call us to do some very radical things because Christ was radical. He was for sure. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much that you've given us such a reliable account, so believable, so credible. And now may we take that information, may we internalize it, and may we become members of your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen.